One of the hardest things about being a follower of Jesus Christ is forgiving the way he did and the way he does. Can you even imagine dying for someone? And while you're hanging on the cross, they're spitting on you, mocking you, making fun of you. And not only do you not jump down, which you absolutely could and probably should have, you actually say to your father, please don't put this on their tab, for they have no idea what they're doing. This is the one whom we follow. And because this is how he rolls, this must be how we roll. We are continuing our series entitled Seven Mandates, where from the first of the year until Easter, I'm going to be walking us through the seven mandates that I and the elders believe God has given our church. And I also believe this is, this is for the capital C church. These aren't just so specific to us that it, it's not for everybody else. I believe these are seven things the church must exceed in in the day in which we live. We spent two weeks talking about mandate number one. Mandate number one is we must be a presence-driven church. Now we move to mandate number two. And let me just say, this is excruciating today. Like this is not gonna be easy. There may be times where you are really ticked at me, okay? Remember, that's how you know I'm doing my job. Because if you're always really happy with what I'm doing, that might be your flesh. And I'm not trying to tick you off, all right? But I am trying to lead us to higher places so that we as a church can carry more responsibility as God bestows it upon us. How many of you like to grow? Okay, let me remind you, pain is always a part of growth. And so is honest assessment. I cannot grow where I need to go if I don't know where I am right now. So the burden for today is not really a sermon. We're actually going to take a test today together and you're gonna hate it. Here's mandate number two. We must be a historically generous church. And here's the burden for this message. God is generous. Are you? God is generous. Are you? And we're going to walk through six questions that I believe are on probably, just in my opinion, life's hardest test as a believer, the test of generosity. John 3.16, the most famous verse in all the earth, gives us our mandate to be generous. I like the way the New Living translates this. It's not the way I memorized it when I was a kid, but it says this, for this is how God loved the world. He gave. Our God is known as the generous one. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. 
The people of God must be the most generous people on the earth, which means the church must be the most generous entity on the earth because our God is the most generous one in the heavens and in all the earth. If his church isn't known for generosity, people who do not yet know God will struggle to ever get a revelation of the immeasurable generosity of God. And here's why that's so dangerous. A person cannot fully understand the love of God until they first understand the generosity of God. Remember what we talked about last week? He lavishes. What does his love look like? Lavish. It's lavish. It's overwhelming. It's drowning. Another way to say it is generous. In order to understand the love of God, you have to first understand the generosity of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, give you a touch of context before we read these two verses. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, brings up in verse 1 the church in Macedonia. And here, here's kind of the way I would describe the church in Macedonia. They were a church with little in resource, but with much in generosity. And the church in Corinth was the opposite, and that's why Paul is juxtaposing the church in Macedonia with the church in Corinth. Here's how I would describe the church in Corinth. They were much in resource, but little in generosity. Watch what he says, and this, this might very well describe the church in the Western world in the day in which we live. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 7. Paul says, since you excel, that's a great word that I think became very popular in the mega movement, excellence. Since you excel in so many ways, in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from and for us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. I'm not commanding you to do this, but I am testing. This is why we're taking a test today. I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. You know a test is from the Lord when it's excruciating to take. You ready to saddle up? Okay. Three parts to this test, three sections, just like on the SAT, not to give you PTSD. The SAT, three sections, uh, what were they? I think it's reading, writing and language, and math, right? Okay, first section on the test of generosity is your money. When I said we were talking about generosity, many of you immediately assumed the entire message is about your money. I have really bad news for you. Only one-third of this message is about your money, and the next two-thirds of the message, you will pray to God that I would go back and talk about your money. Everybody acts like money is the worst part of the conversation of generosity. It's actually not. It's the easiest part. The hardest section on the test of generosity is not money. That's the easiest. Once you understand where money comes from, which isn't from you, comes from your heavenly father who owns everything in heaven and on earth once you understand money doesn't come from you you just chill out and it gets a lot easier to be generous with it 
First question on section number one on your money is this. Am I generous towards others with my money? We're going to figure out, and listen, we're going to take this test at the end of this message. Am I generous towards others with my money? Deuteronomy 15, verse 10, one of many verses I could have read to you, says, give generously to the poor. How, how would we define the poor? Let me give you my kind of working definition of poor. Someone who has little or less than you. That's how I want you to see poor. Now, please don't walk up to someone who has less than you and say, I feel so sorry for you being poor. Okay, we're not talking about labels. We're talking about perspectives. Because here's one of the biggest excuses we make about being generous with our money towards other people. They don't need it. Someone who doesn't just have little, also someone who simply has less than you. Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly, for the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. You know what you call that? Positive reinforcement. Anybody ever trained a child to be potty trained? Ever have that child that just went to the bathroom everywhere? You tried the old keep their diaper off so that they would learn faster and they just went to the bathroom everywhere? And so you started bribing them with positive reinforcement? Here's a treat, here's a toy, right? That's actually what God is doing here. Preston, here's how badly I want you to bless others with your money. Here's my response. When you do, I'll bless you in everything you do. How many of us want to be blessed in everything we do? God shows us one of the ways. When we, as the people of God, are generous, we actually draw attention to the generosity of God. But when you think you don't have enough, you never give anything to anyone else. And there's a word for that. Yo, stingy. You be stingy. A stingy child of God sends the message that God is stingy. Here's what they're saying with their stinginess. Well, because God is stingy, God has therefore been stingy with me. And because God has been stingy with me, I have therefore been stingy with you. That's why I didn't tip you, even though you worked really hard to deserve a tip, a great tip. I'm not tipping you because God's been stingy with me. And that sends the message, God is stingy with all. Believers should be the best tippers at the valet. Here's what's funny. I worked at the Arizona Biltmore back in the day. And I I was 19, 20, 21 when I worked there. And I just thought that famous people will be the best tippers. That rich people will be the best tippers. Some of the biggest well-known athletes of my lifetime tip me the least when I would bring them their car. But then there would be some no-name person who wouldn't give me five bucks. They'd give me a hundred bucks. Believers should leave a wake of generosity behind them everywhere they go. Here's why. Because when we do, the testimony we send is our God is generous. And that's why I am too. Are you generous towards others with your money? 
That's question number one. Question number two, am I generous towards the church with my money? And this is where some squirm, inevitably. And I'm not going to spend too much time here. And some of you are like, thank God. Here's why I'm not spending too much time here, because I'm going to do a whole series on this later in the year. Yeah. I don't know why any of you go to church here, honestly. Proverbs 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Now, the way Pastor Robert raised me in ministry, there are three parts to honoring God with my money in the church. The first area is the tithe, which literally means a tenth. Malachi 3, verse 10, bring all the tithes, bring all the tenths into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. There's that positive reinforcement thing again. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Now, I don't have a ton of time to camp here, but last night, a young guy came up to me and he said, I always tithe. He was 25. I've always tithed. And then the church where I went to school and where I was going uh, went through uh, a very well-known fall. And since then, I've struggled with tithing to the church. I still give the 10%, but I just spread it around to people. Okay, that's not actually what you do with the tithe, according to scripture. It says, bring the tithes where? Into the storehouse. And here's what I told him. I said, have, have you ever met someone who was divorced? Now, he's 25. He said, well, I, I've actually been divorced. And I said, you ever want to get remarried? He said, yeah, big time. I said, so you haven't given up on love just because you saw it go bad once. And you could see his mind start working. And I go, listen, one of the big mistakes that believers make with the tithe is they think the tithe is an issue between them and the storehouse. So if they ever have a problem with the storehouse, they bounce with God's tithe. The tithe is between you and God, not between you and the storehouse, but it comes to the storehouse. And then here's what I told him, because he, he wants to go into ministry and be a church planner at one point. I said, can I, can I just let you in on a little secret? Everybody looks in my direction and thinks the best part is the raising of funds. Can I actually tell you it's one of the worst parts? Here's why. I'm going to stand before God for every dollar. You want my job? I don't want to waste anything. Because none of it is mine. None of it is ours. It's all his. Leviticus 27, verse 30, tells us as much that the tithe belongs to the Lord. Now, some people, and again, I can't camp here. I'm going to spend more time later in the year. Some people say, yeah, but that was before Jesus. No, no, no. He's the God who never changes. If the tithe belonged to him then, it still belongs to him now. But he doesn't stop there. He says, not only is the tithe mine, I also see the tithe as holy. That means God sees the tenth differently than any other resource in heaven or on earth. The first way we know we are generous with our money towards the church, God's church, is the tithe, but it doesn't stop there. The next measure is what the Bible calls an offering. What's an offering? 
An offering is any giving gift over and above the tithe. Now remember, we don't give the tithe. So make sure this is not just semantic. When you tithe, don't say, I'm giving the tithe. We can't give something that's not ours to give. The tithe belongs to the Lord. So another way to see it is, if you asked to borrow my truck and then tried to, to come back to me, hand me my keys and say, Preston, I wanna give you a gift. Here's a truck. You can't give me what was already mine. The tithe is the Lord's. We don't give it, we return it. But everything else, we bring as a gift. First Chronicles 29, probably my favorite offering gift in all of scripture, King David gives a gift to build the temple. Let me read you a couple of verses to show you how it goes down. First Chronicles 29, starting in verse three. David says, and now, because of my devotion to the temple of my God, I am giving all of my own private treasures of gold and silver to help in the construction. Why did David give this offering? Because of his devotion to the house of God. Verse four, David says, I'm donating more than 112 tons of gold. Anybody got that laying around in their couch? And 262 tons of refined silver. Now, it depends what metric you use. Uh, I've, I've seen some uh, theologians say present day value of 20 billion. It seems kind of the generally agreed upon going rate is somewhere between 180 and 200 billion dollars. That was the gift David gave to the Lord, the offering to build the house of God. Now look in verse 13 and 14, because you might be wondering how in God's name could anybody ever give that much as an offering to the Lord? Let me show you how. Verse 13, oh, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we could give anything to you? Everything we have has come from you. Do you know how easy it is to let go of money when you realize all of it came from God? David says, am I really even giving you anything? Because all of this was from you anyways. He says, we give you only what you first gave us. Then here's the third area to really understand if we're generous with our money towards the house of God. I would call it extravagant offering. Tithe, offering, extravagant offering. Now, before you freak out, some of you are thinking, sweet mother of Jesus, Preston. How can an offering be more extravagant than $200 billion? Here's what you have to remember. The extravagance of an offering isn't measured by its amount. It's measured by what it costs the giver. Luke chapter 21, I believe, is the most extravagant offering aside from Jesus giving his life. I think quite possibly this is the single most extravagant offering. We talked about one last week, the alabaster jar of perfume that was worth a year's wages, but this is even more extravagant. Luke 21, starting in verse one, says, while Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts, so not their tithes, their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has given more than all of the rest of them. 
For they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. This is for those of us who say, God is just about money. The church is just about money. Isn't it fascinating that God says, let me tell you what's more extravagant than 200 billion. Two mites. The widow's two mites. She outgave everybody. Why? Because what she gave cost her more than what everybody else gave. Extravagant offering. What I've learned about extravagant offerings before the Lord, sometimes they involve money, sometimes they involve things far more expensive than money. If we're going to be a historically generous church, we've got to settle in and get comfortable Forget about the tithe, that, that's like entry-level stuff. We've got to move on to offerings and even more so to extravagant offerings. We have people in our church who are in their 70s fostering infants. That's an extravagant offering. While the husband is battling cancer, they've already fostered seven, six or seven Children, four and under. People, that be extravagant. And now they're mothering the mothers of these babies. Bro, this is savage. Forget about money. Generosity isn't just about money. Generosity is about what we can give. That brings us to the second section of the test. Your time. Your time. Question number three on this test. Am I generous with my time alone with God? Now, I got I to gotta speed up the pace here because we got to take the test. So I got I to gotta get out of preach mode a little bit. First Chronicles chapter 16, verse 11 says, Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. See, this is why we started with we must be a presence-driven church. God desires us to seek his presence continually, all the time. 1 Thessalonians 5, you might be thinking of this verse. Verse 16, connecting this to prayer, says pray without ceasing. Preston, don't stop. What does that mean? Hole up in my prayer closet 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the rest of my life? No. It means to live with a foundational awareness of his nearness in such a way that I am communing with him constantly, no matter where, no matter what, no matter who is in the room. This is what it means to seek his presence continually. But I want to give you two questions. Hopefully you're taking notes, because if you're not taking notes, then you're cheating off of my test. Two ways to know if you're generous in your alone time with God. Here's the first question. How often is your often? Luke chapter 5, verse 16 says, But Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. Now, God doesn't measure you by how much time you spend with him. But I will say this, he does measure your intimacy in part by how much time we spend alone with him. That, that's just common sense. That's not rocket science. Think about it. 
Should I spend more time with my wife than you? Yes or no? Yes. yes. If I want to stay married, yes. God says, Preston, listen, you're going to have a lot of people in your life, but none matter more than me. In fact, when Jesus was walking the earth, he said, by comparison, you must hate your father, mother, brother, sister in comparison to how you love me. I want the top billing in your life relationally. That's what God says. Okay, so how often is your often? This is one of the ways to know how generous you are in your time alone with God. But there's another way to know how generous you are. How secret are your secrets in the secret place? Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. The disciples say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he says, when you pray, go away by yourself and shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. Why do we shut the door? When we shut the door, when other people are around, what we're saying is, the conversation that's about to be had on the other side of this door is not for public consumption. It's just for those on the other side of the door. If you're married, I don't know that you've ever experienced this because your marriage is probably perfect and mine is not. But have you ever been through a season where you just got in a little bit of a relational rut and it was almost like you felt more like roommates than lovers? You probably never experienced that before. Marriage is filled with, with those kind of ebbs and flows. And Holly and I, for a little while, have been like ships passing in the night. And uh, on Friday, which is typically my day off, uh, we were driving down to Ikea with Maxon. And we're riding in the truck, and I just said, hey, I feel like we're a little disconnected. And so let, let's just, on this hour-long drive down to Tucson, which is practically where Ikea is, I said, let's just use the time, let's redeem the time by reconnecting. And so I started asking questions like this. What's the biggest thing that frustrates you in life right now? What's the number one stress you have in life right now? What's the number one thing you're most afraid of right now? I started asking questions like that. And here's what I said to her before she answered the first question. I said, hey, if when I ask you, What's the number one thing you're afraid of right now? You say, eh, I'm not really afraid of anything. That's a sign or a symptom that we're not digging in deep enough. Because if you ask me that right now, I would tell you. Here's the number one thing I'm afraid of right now. I said, so let, let's dig deep enough to connect. Isn't it amazing that this is what the Father wants with us? One of the reasons it's called the secret place is he wants us to bring our secrets into his secret place. Preston, talk to me about where you're at, what you're feeling, the depths of what you're feeling. One of the ways we know how generous we are in our time alone with God is how secret are your secrets in the secret place. Question number four, am I generous with my time in God's house? Question, who determines how much time you spend in the house of the Lord? You or God? Who determines how many times a month you come to church? Your feelings or your father? Okay, remember, 
My job isn't to make you happy. I'm not trying to tick you off. But if I don't partner with the Holy Spirit from time to time to bring the conviction of the Spirit into the room, I'm probably not doing my job. Statistics say, post-COVID, that the average believer is in church less than one time per month. My question is simple. Who made that choice? Who decided? Here's what I hear a lot of. When, when, because everyone thinks that I know when you're not here. So I'll be out in the lobby and, and somebody will come in late and they're like, oh, hey, pastor, sorry we weren't here last week. Well, I didn't even know, so you don't even have to say that. <laughs> you know, it's just been a busy run and we just needed a break. And I've never said this, but I've always wanted to. Who made that decision? You or him? Because what I hear you saying is, all the more reason you needed to be in his house. Let me say it like this. In my opinion, the church, capital C, cannot be the church when the church isn't in church. Well, Preston, we are the church. The church isn't a building, says the person who rarely visits it. Well, Preston, I've kind of taken offense to what you're saying. I'm not trying to offend you, but you're making it sound like the house of God doesn't matter. Go back and read the Old Testament. To what lengths did God himself go to describe every square inch of the temple? He said exactly how he wanted the curtains to look, how high he wanted them to go, and exactly what material he wanted them to be. What message was he sending? My house matters deeply to me. And anything that matters deeply to my father must matter deeply to me. Am I generous with my time towards the house of God? Here's a tough illustration. Let's just put it all on me so you don't feel like I'm breaking your toes. Let's say I started traveling again. Haven't traveled for the last four years because the Lord told me I was to take a break. Let's say overnight I started traveling again and said yes to every opportunity in such a way that I was gone on a monthly basis the entire month except for 90 minutes a month. The only time I make it home to see my wife and children is for 90 minutes a month. I want you to process what adjectives you would use to describe me as a father and a husband. I think many of you would say, you're absent as a father and as a husband. I wouldn't argue that. I wonder if Jesus looks at his church right now and says she's absent. And he shows up week in and week out, midweek and weekend, desiring to connect with his bride in the house of God. But she no-shows more than she shows. I can't say I'm generous if I'm not generous in my time 
in the house of God. A believer who rarely goes to church is like a spouse who rarely goes home. And when I live for myself, time is something I almost always spend on myself. But 2 Corinthians 5.15 tells us we're not to live in that way. Jesus died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. This brings us to the third section on the test, where it gets even harder. His grace. Section one, yo money. Section two, yo time. Section three, if we're going to be a historically generous church, we must be one of the most generous churches in the valley in terms of his grace. Two parts of that. Here's question number five. Am I generous with my grace gifts toward others? Ephesians chapter four, verse seven says, but to each one, speaking of believers, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is talking about the gifts God gives to us to build the local church and build the kingdom on the earth. 1 Peter 4 verse 10 says, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Question. What would the church look like if every believer chose not to use their grace gifts to serve in the house of God? Here's what the church would look like. An empty building. Right now, if you have children, there are people on the other side of that wall who have chosen to use their grace gifts to serve God and you by caring for your children. Can you imagine what those rooms would look like if no one in our church made the godly choice to use their grace gifts to serve? You're like, yes, Preston, I know exactly what that looks like. It looks like my children's playroom when I'm not in it. Mayhem. We have people every weekend stand at the doors using their grace gifts to welcome people into the house of the Lord. We have people every weekend using their grace gifts to pray with people at the altar. Think about the gift of mercy. You know, what would the altar be like when a single mom in the next service feels overwhelmed beaten down by her past. And she feels the Holy Spirit say, you need to go forward for prayer. And she's expecting to get, once she just starts talking about the sins of her past, which she thinks will define her for the rest of her life, but she happens to encounter someone with the grace gift of mercy who does not give her what she thinks she deserves. And it's a domino that begins to affect the rest of her life. Because in that divine and holy moment, she begins to see a, sign of, a side of God she's never seen before. God is full of mercy and grace. But what would happen if the person with the grace gift of mercy chose not to use it today? That single mom goes home with an even more open door for the enemy to wreak havoc in her life. Here's what I personally believe. Every child of God, should use their grace gifts to serve God in the house of God. 
we have a bunch of amazing people who are already doing this. But what would our church look like if every single person in our church who calls this church their home made the choice to use their grace gifts to serve God in the house of God? What would happen if the capital C church had a 100% participation rate and every believer in Jesus made the godly choice to use their grace gifts to build up the local church and the kingdom of God on the earth. Here's what I think would happen. It would usher in the latter reign of God and the great harvest that will happen before the return of Jesus Christ. When the bride gets off the bench and serves in the house of God with her gifts, all bets will be off. Why don't we try this year? Why don't we try? I don't care if you serve once a month, once every six weeks, because you travel every weekend. Set a goal. More than any year prior to this one, I'm going to use the gifts God has given me to serve in the house of the Lord. Am I generous with my grace gifts towards others? And here's question number six. Am I generous in extending grace? to others. I believe that God desires his church, so I'll personalize it for ours. He desires this church to be known as being historically generous in extending grace towards others. That means not judging. Now, we're not moving the line. Sin is sin. Right is right, wrong is wrong, truth is truth. We're not moving the line. But I believe the church is meant to be known for forgiveness. One of the most expensive ways to extend grace is to forgive. Remember in Matthew 18, Peter comes to Jesus, I think kind of feeling his oats a little bit, kind of trying to show off, and he goes, Jesus, how many times should I forgive somebody who wrongs me greatly? And then I think his thought before he says what he says next was like, I'm about to show off in front of everybody. Jesus, should I forgive seven times? Because you know, the other 11 are only forgiven one time. Should I forgive seven times? And Jesus goes, no, bro. My paraphrase. No, bro. 70 times seven. And Jesus tells a story of a man who owed millions upon millions upon millions to a king. The king called the note. The man who owed millions upon millions upon millions couldn't pay the note. And the law said he should be jailed until he can pay or he must pay with his life. The man who owed millions upon millions upon millions threw himself at the feet of the king. And the king forgave his debt. Not long after that, the man who was forgiven millions upon millions upon millions had someone in his life who owed him several thousand. He called the note. The man who owed several thousand to the man who'd been forgiven millions upon millions upon millions threw himself at the feet of the man who was forgiven millions upon millions upon millions. And that man said, 
I'm throwing you in jail until you can pay me back. Because the law says it's either that or you pay with your life. Some people saw what was going on and they went back to the king and reported, the man whom you forgave, millions upon millions upon millions, would not forgive someone who owed him several thousand. And the king said, throw him in jail. Listen to me. Each of us is the one who was trillions upon trillions in debt because of sin. And Jesus paid our tab. One of the hardest things about being a follower of Jesus Christ is forgiving the way he did and the way he does. Can you even imagine dying for someone? And while you're hanging on the cross, they're spitting on you, mocking you, making fun of you. And not only do you not jump down, which you absolutely could and probably should have, you actually say to your father, please don't put this on their tab for they have no idea what they're doing. This is the one whom we follow. And because this is how he rolls, this must be how we roll. So when someone attacks you, you gotta forgive. When someone slanders you, you gotta forgive. When someone steals from you, you gotta forgive. When someone makes your life miserable, you gotta forgive. When someone trespasses against you, you gotta forgive. When someone defiles you, you've got to forgive. Now, doesn't mean you ever gotta let them back in the way you once did. I'm talking about in your heart. You've got to release them from the debt that they deserve to pay based on what they did. Here's why. Because our God is immeasurably forgiving of our sins. And I don't want to be the one who's been forgiven trillions, who goes around judging everybody else for a couple bucks of debt. Are you generous in extending grace towards others? I want to show you the end. If you're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to go back to verse 1 because I want to show you in verse 5, we'll work up to it, the key to being historically generous. Here's how we're going to pull it off. Paul says, Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They're being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. They were historically generous. In such a way, we're still talking about them right now. And they did it of their own free will. No one made them do it. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. Watch verse 5. They even did more than we had hoped. Here's how. 
for their first action or gift was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to do. Here's how we're going to pull this off. We're not just going to give money to the Lord in tithes, offerings, and extravagant offerings. We're not just going to give more of our time to the Lord than ever before. And we're not just going to give more grace to mankind. We're going to give the most extravagant gift any of us can give in response to the most extravagant gift Jesus has ever given, his own life. And here is our gift in response to his. We're giving ourselves. Here's how we're going to pull this whole thing off. I'm not giving some of me. I'm giving all of me. It's the only way. Part of growth is honest assessment about where I am right now. And here's what you need to know. When I took the test you're about to take, it did not send the message that I am giving all of me. I did not do well on the test. And here's what well is to me. A perfect score is Jesus. I'm nowhere near his score. Two ways to see that. You're either the type of person who sees a failing grade on a test and goes, I'm a failure. Or you're the type of person who goes, we got nowhere to go but up. <laughs> Look what we pulled off, getting a bunch of 50% on the generosity test. Imagine what we might pull off if we just moved to C's and then to B's and then to A's. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna have them put up on the screen and I'm not giving you much time to take this test. I'm literally giving you a less than three minutes to take this test, okay? So they're gonna put it up on the screen. It's eight questions, all right? And the reason it's eight, even though we covered six, is question number two, am I generous with my money towards God's house? I'm actually bringing in all three of the areas, the tithe, the offering, and the extravagant offering, okay? And here's what I want you to do. On a scale of one to 12, I want you to rate yourself in each of these eight questions. And I want you to do it right now. We're doing this together, all right? I did this last night, I want you to do it right now. Take out your phone, if you're writing on a pad, you don't have to write out the questions, just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and then on a scale of one to 12. And then at the end, add them all up. Person, I don't wanna take this test because I know I'm not gonna do well on it. Don't be afraid. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is not looking at the results of your test going, you are terrible. Our God is the God who cheers us on even when we strike out because we tried. The reason I'm not giving you much time is I don't want you to give yourself too much time to tell yourself a story that may not be true. Go with the first thought. Whether it's high or low.
Angel just playing in the background makes a failing grade just a little easier to stomach. I'll give you a little, a little more time, less than a minute. Don't be afraid to take the test. Never be afraid to take a test that God administers. Because remember, God doesn't test us to fail us. That's actually why Satan tempts us. God tests us to grow us and promote us. Never be afraid of a test God administers. All right, would you stand? Here's what I want us to do before I invite the altar ministry team to come to the front. Odds are most of us did not do as well as we had hoped on this test. That's actually really good news. Look what we've pulled off before the Lord with a whole lot of failing grades on the test of generosity. When I saw my grade, I didn't go, I went, you got to be kidding me. And I, here's what I felt the Lord challenged me with. I want you to improve your score by 20% this calendar year. So he didn't say, everybody get to an A. If you got a 30% on this test, isn't it amazing that our God says, hey, just get to a better F. I got you covered. Just take a 20% jump this year in your generosity. If you don't serve in the house of the Lord, start serving in the house of the Lord. Even if it's just once a quarter, take a 20% jump. Can we, as a church, just take a moment? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And can we give an extravagant offering to the Lord in our hearts right now just saying to the Lord, God, take all of me. Would you just say that in your heart towards him? God, take all of me. Use me however you desire. Do whatever you want in me. Take whatever you want from me. Give whatever you want to me in order to move it through me. God, take all of me. Spirit of the living God, I pray. By the time this rodeo is done many years from now, when you look in our direction, you would see us the way Paul saw the church in Macedonia that no matter how much we have, no matter how big or small we are, that we are one of the most historically generous churches in our hearts towards you, your house, and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.